We're going to take a little break from the Luke series uh, that Tom has been walking through, and we're going to take a look at John 5, verses 1 through 18. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn with me there now. This is the healing of the paralytic uh, at the pool in Bethesda on the Sabbath. Uh, Do you have something that needs to be fixed, uh, but it's been a very long time since you've attempted to address the problem? Do you know someone who owns something that is broken, but they simply refuse to repair it? I'm sure we could all think of something or someone. Uh, In high school, one of my best friends, Ben, had this car, and uh, it could only be described as a piece of junk. Uh, He refused to fix this thing. It was like 12 shades of faded green. If it had two hubcaps, they certainly didn't match. Everything would break on it. The gas would stick. The brakes would give out. Uh, It was ridiculous. It was possessed. It was like Christine, except like a long-lost ugly cousin. And uh, so my friend, he would not get it fixed, uh, either parts or a tune-up, nothing. So we're traveling down the road one time, and the the horn just... And, uh, you know, there's four of us in the car. Rather than it be like an anxiety-inducing thing, we start laughing and... And so we're trying to figure out how do we stop the horn. And so my friend Ben, owner and driver, rips the vinyl off of the steering wheel while he's driving and just starts tearing wires. Uh, We don't know what they go to. Maybe power steering. Who knows? But um, nothing. Still horn blaring. So we pull over. We're we're keeled over laughing. Our ears are starting to bleed. So he pops the hood, and I eventually disconnected uh, the horn from its electrical source. But... He would not get this thing fixed. Every time we drove, there was some kind of a problem. Other times, we refuse to even acknowledge that a problem exists. Uh, seven summers and about 25 pounds ago, I was a wilderness guide, and we were out on this big hiking trip, and uh, we were with a bunch of high school students, and we were taking a lunch break. And after lunch, the students decided to play some kind of a chasing game. I don't know. I was resting. But uh, they were running around doing something, and one of the young guys fell and cut his knee pretty badly. And it was clear to us that he's going to need to go to the emergency room. But we're out in the middle of nowhere. And so we're like, you know, this is a problem. We're, we're going to take you to the emergency room. He's like, no, it's fine. The young guys fell and we're going to take you to the emergency room. He's like, no, it's fine. I think he's kind of in shock. It's okay. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I can see the bone of your kneecap. I think it's a problem. So we finally make this MacGyver-like stretcher out of sticks, and we carry him like three miles to the road uh, to go to the hospital. But he was adamant. You know, I'm okay. There's no problem, right? He just refused to acknowledge that there was a problem. And so with this idea of either not fixing a problem that exists or refusing to, refusing to acknowledge a problem that exists. Let's read John 5, 1 through 18 together. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. 
So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would be with Tom as he is not well. Uh, Lord, uh, I pray for his health, that you would bring him back to us soon. We pray, Spirit, that you would accompany your word to our minds and hearts uh, this morning. Um, make it powerful to us. Convict us of our sin. Convict us of our narrow-mindedness and the way that we impose upon you our ideas about how you should be and how you should interact with us. Lord, we relinquish these things and we ask, we ask that you would come and pervade this place now. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage that we are looking at this morning kind of delivers a bit of a one-two punch. The first is that the miracle gives us insights into both the human condition and the heart of God. And the second is that we learn something about the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus performs the miracle on the Sabbath, and this, this causes a strong reaction from the onlooking Jews. And it might be easier to deal with both of them separately, um, but that would not be treating this passage as a whole, which I think it most definitely is. I think the two are so inextricably linked that we must consider the overall thrust of these 18 verses. And what is that? What is this passage trying to tell us some 2,000 years later? Well, I believe the main idea or proposition if you will, is very simply, God's grace supersedes. I realize that that statement is rather broad, but I hope over the course of the next few minutes you'll begin to see how it applies here. In these verses, it's clear that we are dealing with two types of hearts, not physiologically, but spiritually, the unwilling heart and the hardened heart. These are then contrasted with the very heart of God. Therefore, our outline for this morning will be as follows. The unwilling heart of the sick the hardened heart of the religious and the gracious heart of the Savior. The unwilling heart of the sick. Let's reread the first seven verses. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has the sick. Let's reread the first seven verses. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool and when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. In the first century, it was not uncommon for towns and villages to have one or more pools uh, where people gathered not only to bathe, but to immerse themselves for medicinal purposes. Uh, people would flock to these sanctuaries of healing, 
And it was customary to find these places surrounded by people incapacitated by their illnesses and paralysis and hoping to somehow come in contact with the water in order that they might be healed as well. So these, these pools became a common traditional gathering place. And so people also kind of perpetuated this, this myth or legend that an angel would periodically come down, presumably invisibly, and descend and stir up the water. And that the first person into the pool, immediately following the stirring, would be healed. That's why he says what he says, that I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, i.e. when I'm trying to get there, uh, someone steps in before me. Now this miracle in John 5 takes place at a pool with five roof, roofed colonnades called Bethesda, which means house of mercy. And it's always important to remember that the names and places uh, given to the in Scripture are all often significant. Uh, here at the pool near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, an act of great mercy was about to occur, Bethesda, house of mercy. Uh, likewise, the name Bethlehem means house of bread, the birthplace of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And so here we are, the house of mercy. We encounter a paraplegic man who had lain beside the pool for 38 years. Not 38 hours, not 38 days, not 38 months. 38 years and nothing. Now, being a paraplegic nowadays is difficult enough, but situations were considerably mounted against someone in this first century Palestine. Issues, issues of mobility, livelihood, and social isolation come with the territory, but there was also this pervasively held belief in those days that somehow sin was intimately connected to physical health. The two somehow went hand in hand. Therefore, we can add condemnation to the list of before-mentioned challenges. Additionally, someone who was by and large immobile would have to deal with their own continence or lack thereof. The stench of urine and feces were probably common around individuals with paralysis. Perhaps this man in particular drug himself around by way of his upper body. Maybe his hands and forearms were rough and torn from the coarseness of the dirty and rocky streets. Whatever the case, this guy's isolation and suffering were far more than I'd suppose any of us could ever imagine. Jesus, fully aware of his condition, approached him and asked him a very strategically worded question, do you want to be healed? Now, considering that this man spent 38 years propped against a column or a wall next to the healing pool at the house of mercy, at first glance, this question comes off a bit simple, if not cruel. Isn't that like asking a starving man if he wants some food or a dehydrated man if he wants some water? But as wise consumers of the word, we settle on to Jesus' question and rest there a little bit. Obviously, Jesus was aware of his condition. It says so in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? You see, it wasn't a question of Jesus' ignorance of the man's situation. He knew, and yet he still asked the question, so why? And though I never want to presume upon the very mind of God, I wonder if Jesus could not have been asking, have you lost hope? Has your will to be healed left you? Have you utterly resigned yourself to this kind of life? Do you want to be healed? Jesus' question strikes at the core of what it means to have an unwilling heart. It's a tough question to ask. 
but I'm willing to posit that every one of us can relate. There's something in all of us in which we have completely resigned and given up hope, some life situation and circumstance. Perhaps it's exercising and eating healthy. The frenetic pace of life and its ups and downs leave you frustrated. Perhaps it's a broken relationship with a family member or friend that you so desire to be repaired and restored. But the wedge between you only seems to grow. Perhaps it's just general stagnancy in life. You feel like you have no direction. You're headed nowhere. No guidance. And though these are all very significant things, perhaps that which you have given up hope on is deeper. Perhaps it involves a particular area of sin in your life. And I think most of us can relate to this in some way or another. We harbor a certain sinful propensity in our hearts for years, and it doesn't seem to get any better. We pray, we strain against it and fail again and again. We pray more, but there doesn't seem to be any victory. So we give up, we resign. This is just the way I am. We lose hope and we lose the will to be healed. But please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying like where there's a will, there's a way, that we, we can somehow muster up enough willpower to merit the healing grace of God. That's not what I'm saying. But Jesus himself asks the question, do you want to be healed? Do you still believe that I can heal you? Have you given up hope in this respect? Well, the unwilling heart of the sick is not a foreign concept to us. The scenery never seems to change, and so we set up shop in our hopelessness. You want to be different. You know the way you're living your life is missing the mark. You try, you pray, but nothing ever seems to change. You look around and you watch other people entering the healing waters of the pool, but your condition has left you paralyzed in hopelessness and fear, unable to move and resigned to remain sick. And so there is the unwilling heart of the sick, and there's also the hardened heart of the religious. In verse 8, Jesus says to the paraplegic man, get up, take up your bed and walk. And he does. And we'll deal with the actual healing more deeply in our final main point a little later. What I want us to look at now is what occurs immediately following the healing. Uh, We read in verses 9b through 13, anytime you see A or B, just means the verse has been split up. A is the first half of the verse. B is the second half of the verse. And so we're starting in the second half of verse 9. 9b through 13, 15 through 16 and 18. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Well, they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. I'm going to skip over verse 14 in which Jesus essentially introduces himself to the guy. We'll revisit it later on. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, verse 18, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, the Mishnah, which is the ancient law for rabbinical Judaism, contains an entire section devoted to Sabbath laws. Specifically, there are 39 categories of things that were forbidden on the Sabbath. And in section 7.2, it says 
specifically that carrying something such as a bed from one place to another is strictly forbidden, forbidden, prohibited. Apparently carrying beds was getting out of hand, and so they had to amend the Mishnah. <laughs> Section 7.2 was added. Uh, no, but really it, it does. It implies doing work. And so they had this very universal concept, no work. This implies doing work. We're not going to do this. No carrying beds. The point is that Jesus had commanded the man to do something that was in open opposition to traditional Jewish law. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew the law better than anyone. The Jews were furious. After the healing, the former paraplegic was too distracted by his newfound health. He didn't even catch the name of the guy who healed him. Jesus had since left, and when the Jews asked the man who did it, he couldn't remember, and he couldn't see him in the crowd. A little while later, Jesus finds the man in the temple, at which point the man kind of rats him out. He says, that's the guy. Now, this is kind of interesting because it's quite possible that this man, too, was aware of the Sabbath laws. And yet, the man walked to the temple uh, to give praise to God and to confirm his healing with the priests. And as he stands on his own two previously useless legs, he identifies Jesus to the Jews as the perpetrator. He's the guy who broke your law. He's the one who has authority to heal. Now, a quick, a quick sidebar. We often hear the word religious used and abused by non-Christians and Christians alike. People often refer to others who believe in something, uh, presumably God, as religious people. And uh, what we're about to learn is that being called religious is uh, not a compliment. It's a criticism. Uh, you see, the Jews in this story are religious people. Their hearts are hardened. Religious people are people who are far more concerned about moralism than they are the gospel. Religious people usually kind of have their act together and are characterized by being proper, dutiful, and rule-keeping. The problem is they do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Scott Sauls, former pastor at Riverside Church over in Webster, he said the following, quote, Rather than follow the commands of God out of a joyful response to the grace and love given to them in Jesus, moralists or religious people keep the rules for all sorts of bogus reasons, usually out of a desire to feel superior to others, to ease their own guilty consciences with good deeds, and or because they are under an illusion that being dutiful will put God into their debt. Now, this accurately describes the Jews that we encounter in this passage. They are standing, standing right next to a guy who for the past 38 years had been hopelessly paralyzed. But rather than rejoice at the miracle Jesus performed, they're up in arms inciting violations of section 7-2. Now, the hardened, the hardened heart of a religious person is a dangerous thing. It says in verse 16 that the Jews began persecuting Jesus. The Apostle John here uses the technical word for persecute, which is a word used in Greek literature for legal prosecution. And so thus John is telling us in the grand narrative, the grand scope of the narrative that is his gospel, he's telling us not just that Jesus is being persecuted here, but that his formal prosecution, that formal charges are being leveled at him. His trial is essentially underway. The Jews have begun to come after him. And to what extent? Well, verse 18 says, uh, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. 
making himself equal with God. Now, how are our hearts hardened with religiosity? Are the frequency and or length of your prayer times a source of pride for you? Are you quick to share your pietistic opinions about the Christian faith and how that pertains to our culture, music, movies, alcohol, dress? Do you have a critical spirit and are you one who is quick to point the finger, identifying the speck in other people's eyes? I know I am. And I can sound very concerned and humble while doing it. Has your relationship with the Lord deteriorated to such an extent that you find it not only difficult, but at times embittering to rejoice at the redemptive work of God in someone else's life? Are you a religious person with a hardened heart? I think all of us can relate to this on some level. So we've seen the unwilling heart of the sick. We've taken a look at the hardened heart of the religious. Now we turn to that which will never disappoint. And that is the gracious heart of the Savior. We're going to jump around again a little bit and pull out several verses which speak to the gracious heart of God. Verses 8 through 9a, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and he walked. Verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And then in 17, but Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Despite the man's hopelessness, Christ healed him completely. In a place of utter despair and resignation, Jesus rescues this man, every last part of him. The man had nothing to offer him, but God's grace superseded, and the man walked away. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, and he said, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, as I mentioned previously, there was this widely pervasive belief that somehow sin was connected with physical health, that they went hand in hand. And I don't think I need to spend a whole lot of time here this morning explaining how that's not necessarily always the case. It could be, but there's not always a one-to-one relationship between sin and physical ailments. But there could be. For instance, if someone abuses alcohol excessively, they may very well end up having liver failure. A sinful behavior leads to a physical ailment. And so I don't have any idea what could have led to this man's paralysis. But I really don't think that is the point. I think the point is that Jesus not only cares enough to completely heal the man of his physical disease, but his primary concern, as we see throughout all the Gospels, extends to the condition of the man's heart. Sin no more, because that's the most important thing. This is the gracious heart of God. But as we saw, the Jews are far, far from satisfied. They continue to persecute him. He responds in verse 17 by saying, My father is working until now, and I am working. Well, what does that mean? Well, God does not suspend his work on the Sabbath. In replying this way, Jesus is simply saying that he is acting in conformity with the example of his heavenly father. He says, My father. If God is at work upholding the very universe and exercising his prerogative over life and death, then Christ is merely being obedient to the mandate given him by his heavenly Father. Jesus tells us elsewhere in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Therefore, when he says, my Father is working until now and I am working, he's just simply saying, I and the Father are one. Well, the Jews, they don't like that either. Additionally, the Jewish conception of the Sabbath is all out of whack. 
Surely the essence of the Sabbath is not merely idleness. What does that accomplish? Now, to be sure, rest is a primary component of the Sabbath. But surely works of redemption and restoration are acceptable, if not laudable. After all, the Sabbath was created by God not only to take rest, but to give rest. Is that not the paradigm we encounter in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis and also here in John, here at Bethesda? Jesus is doing this in this passage. He's giving a man rest after being paralyzed for 38 years. Now that, that is a Sabbath. And yet the Jews wanted nothing to do with it. Blasphemy, they cried. You see, many in that day and age had added their own prescriptions to the law of God to define for themselves what was and, was, what, and what was not acceptable for not only them to do, but, but apparently for what God himself could do. The Jews had made a box. They labeled it the Sabbath, and they put God in it. They limited God to live within the walls of their narrow-minded understanding of the Sabbath. And do we not also do this? Of course we do. I am constantly putting God in a box and limiting him by my own imposed definitions and expectations. I do this by way of my neat little theology. I do it by my past experiences or lack thereof, my environment, you name it. I am a pro at putting God in a box. I made a box once and I labeled it seminary, put God in it. Before I even took a class, I had a pretty clearly defined idea of what I expected God's will for me to be for those four years what I was going to get out of that experience, where I, was he- where I was headed, what job awaited for me. I pretty much figured out God's will before I even stepped onto campus. Perhaps many of you have created your own boxes. Upon labeling the box, you placed God neatly inside of its clearly defined walls and then proceeded to evaluate your life based on preconceived expectations of what God's will was or is for that particular thing. Some of you have a box labeled marriage. You put God in it. And as time marches on, the ups and downs of marriage cause your relationship with God to suffer because of the imposed limitations and unmet expectations that you've placed on Him in this particular category. Maybe you have a box labeled parenting, you put God in it. Maybe you have a box labeled job or career. Perhaps you've got a, you put God in a box and that box is labeled faith. Imagine that. Maybe you think you have the Christian life all figured out. You spend your perfunctory 30 minutes of prayer in the morning. You eat a good breakfast. You don't speed on your way to work. Go to church once a week, and that's good. That's what the Christian life is. All the while, you feel yourself slipping into disappointment, judgmentalism, and even anger because ultimately your idea of what the Christian life is is disappointing. It's not fulfilling. It's not freeing. There's no liberty there. It's empty religion, and you eventually grow to despise it. Perhaps we have built a box, labeled it church, and put God in it. We think we have the formula all worked out, forgetting that the main ingredients are one huge dose of repentance and a healthy sprinkling of God's Spirit. God's not going to move in His church, the church for which He sacrifices one and only Son, simply because we have good programs. God's going to move in His church when we are on our knees praying for His Spirit to come. We create boxes all the time. We do this in some sphere of our lives, all of us. Not only is this an unhealthy and ungodly practice in and of itself, but it robs the believer of true joy and perspective. When you've placed God in a box, it's like you can't see the forest for the trees. 
It's like the Jews who were whining about section 7-2 of the Mishnah regarding carrying bed mats while a former paraplegic stands at eye level with them telling them about the Messiah. They couldn't see the forest for the trees. More specifically, they couldn't see Jesus Christ for the box they had created and labeled religion. Let us not do the same. This passage, this passage teaches us many things. It teaches us about the unwilling heart of the sick, giving up hope. It teaches us about the hardened heart of the religious. And it teaches us about the gracious heart of God. And it teaches us about the gospel. We're all sick. And our bent is toward approaching God religiously. But God's grace is the only thing that can address both the sick and religious hearts simultaneously. The gospel of grace heals us in Christ while requiring only faith in return. No to-do lists in the kingdom of God. Just Jesus Christ stretching forth his hand saying, Get up, take up your mat and walk. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do confess our sin of building boxes and putting you in them. Lord, we repent of our ways, our desires to limit you, to define you, to minimize you, Lord. I pray that through this worship, through our time together, through your word, Lord, that you would blow apart those boundaries and those definitions and our expectations, Lord, that you would magnify yourself beyond our comprehension, Lord, that you would impact yourself upon Changed, Lord. Changed, Lord. With a different perspective, with a different view, with a different idea. Desiring not formula and practice and tradition, Lord.